Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. So in today's show, I speak with Troy McKinnor, who is the author of Brand Hustle, for Critical Foundations to Accelerate Growth. Troy believes in the power of building brands because brands connect products and services with consumers. Brands strengthen P&Ls and drive growth. Brands attract the best talent and brands provide a beacon in a sea of choice. At Agents of Spring, Troy builds brands by creating disruptive consumer-led products and services by leveraging the creative problem-solving framework. He helps organisations curiously seek out and creatively solve their customers' most valuable problems. Problems that once solved create value for both consumers and organisations. The problems that motivate customers to pay brands to solve. As a startup entrepreneur and co-founder of Quest Beverages, he practices what he believes and he's inspired by the journey of building the calm and stormy brand from nothing. A brand with a mission. Healthier people living on a healthier planet. So now during the course of the conversation, we explore his book in detail. I start off by asking Troy why he decide to write the book. We speak about how brand contributes to the financial success of an organisation. We discuss why it's important to understand the problem you're solving for your customers. And I finish the interview by asking Troy about how brands stand out and then deliver. So keep listening. And as always, really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Troy McKinnor, author of Brand Hustle, Four Critical Foundations to Accelerate Brand Growth. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. So welcome, Troy, to the Synergent Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea of who you are. Who is Troy McKenna? Well, thanks for having me, firstly. Uh, so I am a, um, a brand building expert, been building brands for uh, multinationals, you know, working on huge global brands, uh, startup brands, uh, you name it, working for companies, consulting to companies, doing it for myself in a startup business. And so I've sort of spent 20 years building an expertise uh, around how to grow a brand, basically. And so that's sort of my day job. Okay. So we're here to talk about your book, Brand Hustle, The Four Critical Foundations to Accelerate Brand Growth. Why did you decide to write this book? There's probably a couple of career experiences I've had that have been really contrasting. And I guess what I'm seeing more and more of uh, in business is that Companies don't understand the value of their brand and are not really doing the brand's great service and therefore leaving growth opportunities, you know, uh, they're missing them basically. Uh, you know, so I used to work at Mars, uh, amazing family-owned business, amazing brands, uh, and had the experience of growing some brands, you know, some old brands like Mars and Snickers getting some really good growth on them or I had the opportunity to relaunch Pods a little wafer snack, uh, and you know, doubled the brand in twelve months, tripled it in a couple of you know, short years later, and um, you know, just saw the power of getting your branding right and everything that goes with that. And then, in contrast, I worked at Schweppes. Uh, it was a big business, uh, lots of factories, and a lot of it became factory led. And so we had amazing brands like Cotties, for example, Cotties Cordial, uh, and I just saw it getting you know declining year on year and. The investment wasn't going into it and lots of short-term decisions made that weren't doing the brand justice. And and so I look at that and think, you know, it was the business was doing okay and it was hitting targets each year, but it was getting harder and harder each year. And I just thought, you know, there's lots of that is that uh, going on in business. Everyone's getting very short-term focused and not really doing their brands justice. Uh, and so I guess I really wanted to un- uncover what it takes to grow a brand and, and sort of make brand building sexy again because I think um, marketing's losing its voice brands are sort of taken for granted and I just wanted to get them back on the agenda okay great and for the listeners out there who are wondering uh, why we're talking about marketing uh, on a leadership podcast that here's my logic 
my logic is that every leader has a responsibility for you know protecting a brand and understanding the brand and i think that we can all impact it and support it in certain ways whatever level of leader leadership you're on so i want to start with a, a bit of an excerpt from your introduction which uh, uh resonated with me so matt cut quickly to the chase I would like to offer you the role of marketing manager for the Mars brand. Congratulations. Hang on, hang on, I thought. This role wasn't on my list. To say I was pumped is an understatement. I was going to be moving from the smallest brand in the portfolio to the company's flagship brand. Played it cool. Let me think about it overnight. There was nothing to think about. This was an amazing opportunity. I didn't realize at the time, but my marketing career was going to be forever different. Within a few days, it was evident that this was going to be a huge job, fast-paced, high-pressured. The Mars brand performance was critical to health of business and performance of the business, and it was the biggest profit driver. So I wanted to ask you about that. How did it feel getting that offer as a leader? Uh, Great. Uh, uh, It was um, rewarding in that I'd spent the previous 12 months talking doing uh, working on pods as I just mentioned and uh, and so took a lot of risks and was really um, doing a lot in isolation because not re- no one really cared whether it was successful or not and so I went from working with a really small team and um, you know impacting a small part of the business to getting this opportunity to be a, you know a big leader within the business and um, you know make some big decisions and you know everything scaled up basically mm. from there so it was a it was you know really rewarding and it was uh, sort of that moment of nervous excitement around, yeah. you know, what am I going to do? This brand's been around for a long time. Mm. Am I, what am I going to be able to do to mm. impact that? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was great. And I think the other thing is it's such an iconic brand. So it's, you know, there's only some certain things you can and can't do, like, yeah. do with the brand. So, uh, yeah, it was lots, lots that came with that. But, it, yeah, excitement would be a huge part of that yeah. feeling. Did you feel as though it was a, a huge jump in, in role? Because I often find some of the leaders we work with there can be a little bit worried about that next step that's too big for them. Did you feel that at all? Oh, definitely. I definitely feel like it's a big step. Um, my old man's always given me the advice of bite off more than you can chew and chew like buggery, uh, <laughs> which I, I love that uh, sort of sentiment. Um, and I think I got advice at the time, which was really good, uh, which was what's got you here is not going to get you there, which is you know, working on pods, you can make decisions in isolation. Um, you only have to influence a couple of people and, you know, you can sort of bulldoze some stuff through the business. When, when you're working on a brand like Mars, you can't make decisions in isolation because what you does affects lots of parts of the business and you need to take lots of people on that journey. And equally, you sort of play a big role in getting the business excited. So, you know, thousands of people turn up to work every day. It's like, how do you sort of put a bit of a spring in their step with what we're doing on the, on the big brand? So yeah, I definitely, there was a, a nervousness to it, but um, I'm very much the view of put me in the deep end and let's go for it. And you know, it's sort of that learning curve for those first six months was huge. Yeah. And it's obviously paid off for you. Yes, you? definitely. Yeah. As I said, I've ne- never looked back from there. Um, I've had great opportunities since then. And you know, a lot of it to do with the fact that I you know, worked on that brand. Okay. So I want to start digging deep uh, into your book, and because I think there's a there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in here, and I want to explore this idea that you talk about the four P's of a lost soul. So what are these four P's of a lost soul? Well, I think you know anyone that's read marketing books for the last twenty or thirty years or even longer, uh, you know it's there's the four P's of marketing, which is you know um, uh, the product price. Uh, the place and the promotion. And, you know, if you read, you know, I went through university a long time ago, but historically marketing has been, uh, has influenced those four big levers of the business. Um, uh, And they're really the big growth drivers for a business. Uh, But what's happened is marketing has lost its voice over time. And, you know, what a marketer used to influence is is nowhere near what a a lot of company, in a lot of companies, a marketer does influence now. And so I guess marketing is a bit of a lost soul in that it's, you know, parts of its job have been taken by product teams or tech teams or, you know, um, the supply chain making decisions or, you know, in some cases you'll see uh, marketers are, either product marketers and pricing does something, you know, someone else does that and sales do the place and where it's sold. So it's, it's sort of been split up, but um, yeah, I guess that's, you know, back to the reason I wrote the book was mm-hmm. just feel like marketing's a bit of a lost soul at the moment. And 
if you ask people what marketing is, you'll get ten different def- definitions, and you know it's a it's a bit of an ambiguous statement in in you know, today's age. I was doing an interview, uh, an earlier interview on the podcast, and and the person I was interview was making the had the view that leading a sales team was very different to leading a sort of just a general type team. Do you think that applies to marketing, that trying to lead a marketing team has its own sort of nuances and challenges? Yeah, definitely. I think the challenge with marketing, and I've worked with lots of marketers over the years and managed lots of marketers, um, because the role, a proper pure marketing role, has lots of dimensions to it, can be very analytical, it can be very creative, it can be very out front leadership, it can be very behind the scenes strategic thinking. Uh, and so the people that get attracted to the role and the people that succeed in the role can be very different. And so I think you've got to understand that. And you know, very rarely do you see someone that's the full package within a marketing type role. So you've got to nurture that and get the best out of people. Um, uh, and a lot of the success I've had managing teams has been about uh, development of people how do you give an opportunity to make a big TV campaign versus, you know, work with a supply chain to get a new product to market versus, you know, engage a sales team and, you know, retail customers on that. So I think there's, yeah, there's definitely lots of nuances. Generally, they're smaller teams. The sales team can be, you know, most places will be a lot bigger than the marketing team. So you've got those factors going on as well. Oh, so and aren't they quite often called the make it pretty team? Is that yeah the colouring in department? <laughs> yeah, so it gets lots of lots of uh, lots of yeah. derogatory t- terms get yeah. slung at the marketing team. But yeah, yeah I think um, it's been interesting. A, a colleague uh, who's a CEO of a, a sort of mid-sized business read my book, and he said, you know, I'm sure you wrote it for marketers, but he said it it, it applies a lot to uh, finance teams or supply teams um, should read it because understand what marketing is actually trying to achieve because a lot of it is behind the scenes and not really not really uncovered so uh you know there's lots more to it than just coloring in yeah you also talk about this idea of being under pressure to perform so how do you handle the pressure to perform uh and so well i talk about that in the book in that early on when i was working on small brands and it was just me there probably there's not that much pressure um, you feel like you're under pressure, but really in the scheme of life and business, you're not really under much. And as you work on the bigger brands, you know, when I worked on Mars, uh, the way I dealt with it is I just worked a lot lot longer hours. I was doing long days. I had no kids at the time, so you can afford to do that. And you basically just, just got through it by, you know, rolling up my sleeves and, and working harder. I think when you get into leadership roles where it Schweppes had a team of 40 people and, you know, basically had meetings all day, every day. And, you know, you get to a point where you've basically got to uh, get involved in the decisions you need to be and let other other people make the smaller decisions and, you know, prioritise your time and prioritise your decision-making. Um, and I think the biggest te- challenge, tension for marketing is that a lot of the conversation and, and the, the frame of reference is, one, two, three, five years out, whereas most businesses are thinking about this quarter's number or this year's number. And so you're sort of dealing with that tension as well as, you know, yeah, that's great that you want to do that in two years' time, but what's happening today and how are we going to hit our sales number today? Page 35, you, you, you asked a question, which the reason it stuck with me is that uh, we asked this question in, in our feedback. It's all about the net promoter score. So how likely is it that you would recommend our company slash product service to a friend or colleague? Why, what do you think about the net promoter score? Is it a good thing, bad thing? What do you, what do you really think? Oh, look I, look, I think it's an okay thing. I think what it does is, um, you know, it's very simple and it's, people can get their head around and it's an easy way for businesses to measure how they're tracking. What it, what it lacks is um, uh, the real detail of why people buy a product or service or a company. Uh, and, you know, we've done it. We've worked with a client Huge established organisation, um, institution, uh, been around forever. The best premium sort of offer in the market, uh, and its net promoter score was the best of all its competitors. But it was losing business; it was actually declining, and people were going to another uh, institution. Uh, and the reason they were doing that was because this other place was more state of the art, um, more innovative, more um, you know, get you a better result basically, and. So while the incumbent had a really good net promoter score, it hid the real fact of why people buy the why people were buying the category, which is they wanted innovation and state of the art and progressive and 
you know, moving forward. So it's sort of, there's a layer behind it. And so I guess it's the real, what's the real decision-making and what's the real need that people are buying for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, like I give the example as well of, of Nike, you know, Nike's a great company. I definitely recommend it to people, uh, but I also run. And so I don't run in Nike shoes because they're not mm-hmm. the best thing for my foot. And so yeah. if someone asked me to recommend a shoe, I'd say New Balance is probably a better running shoe, but you know, it's not to say that Nike's not a great company. It's a great company and mm-hmm. definitely recommend it. But you know, Horses for courses, it's not the yeah. best thing if you want to go running, okay. in my mind. So, yeah. You talk about this idea of science versus art. I often think uh, what we do in, in training is a little bit like that. So when you say that, what do, what do you mean? Yeah, so I guess in building a brand, there's, you know, there's all the um, human behavior and the psychology and just the fundamentals of how brands grow. Uh, and then there's all the artistic side to that is you know, the creatively, how do you engage people? And, and so you yeah, guess you need, you need to be able to straddle both and, and do both. Um, you know, the best analogy is uh, architecture. So there's science to, you know, there's gravity. You need to, you know, the, the walls are got to keep the roof up and all that sort of stuff. So there's all this science you need to understand in designing a house. But then there's an artistic side to it, which is how do you work within those constraints and, you know, make it look you know, look amazing and, um, you know, have a, a warmth and functionality to it. And so it's, it's the same with branding. There's certain structure around how a brand will grow, you know, how many customers you bring in and how you price and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but you've actually got to creatively engage them, you know, people to, to, to do that. Uh, and so you need sort of both sides of those uh, spectrums. You make the point that brand value makes a fundamental difference to the financial success of your company. I was actually doing some work earlier this week and it was quite interesting that some of the conversations with the people in that room were that uh, when they're out in the marketplace, people thought they weren't around anymore because there was no brand visibility yeah. of the, of them. So what what can we really do and what can an everyday leader do to really start to contribute towards the brand value? Yeah, so I think the starting point is you've got to really put yourselves in the shoes of your customers and... You know, it's it's very rare to find someone these days that's, days that's got lots of time and sit around just, <laughs> you know, making, you know, putting in lots of decision making into whatever they're going to buy, you know, purchase, etc. Uh, and, you know, so what happens is people make um, split second decisions on what they're going to buy. You know, it's obviously different if you're buying a house or something like that. But even cars, there's over 300 models of cars in Australia and the average person buys a new car and considers five at, at, at sort of most. And so not many brands are getting considered or products. Um, and so what happens is you, your brain sort of does this uh, it's version of Google search. And basically, you know, I need to buy, you know, uh, new shoes. Uh, what are all the brands that come to mind or, you know, the first two or three that come to mind? And that's what happens in most categories. It's two or three considerations. As I said, a car is five. It's a big ticket item. Um, uh, and so, you know, you've got to make it easy for people to think of you in that buying moment because they're not going to go through to the second or third page of Google search. They're not going to go into the detail. They're not going to run big spreadsheets around, you know, all the factors that play in it. And they're going to get, they're going to use a, a gut feel and go, yeah, I think, you know, Here's a couple of brands I consider. Yep, I'm happy with them. Let's go. And so it's much quicker decision making. So you've got to consider that. And I think that's, you know, uh, for companies and leaders, it's about how do you make sure your brand's, you know, memorable, easier to think of in that buying moment and easy to purchase, you know, so they don't have to sort of shop around too much to find you. Is it a case of wearing the wearing a potential customer down? Because I was thinking about, I like MasterChef yeah. and through product placement and through uh, one of the guys they have on there, they're all about, uh, there's a Cobram Estate olive oil and it's been a constant throughout the season this year. So as a result, I think the next time I'm going to buy olive oil, I'm, I don't normally buy that brand, I'm going to try that brand. But I was wondering, is it just because they've worn me down and that I'm seeing it every time? Is that is that the way it works? Uh, yeah, definitely. You can have have that scenario where they just keep tapping away at it. Um, I mean, the most, the biggest the biggest brands are still the ones that have generally been around the longest and they've okay. been doing it consistently for a long time. Uh, yeah, but you know, Cobram Estate and that example, um, yeah, they've been pretty safe. They're putting olive oil on a 
you know, MasterChef and, you know, lots of people watching it. And so it's, you know, it's not really controversial or unique or, you know, memorable. Um, it, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty safe bet, I guess. Yep. Um, some companies can do it, you know, something much more remarkable and, and sort of hit, hit you between the eyes with just one or two um, experiences with it and therefore make it more memorable. So it's just around, you know, how much you punch through all the noise that yeah. the title that's going on uh, to stand out. Interesting. Because I think this is important for small businesses in particular to really think about because they don't have the the big budgets. So they need to think about how can they start to build that awareness. And there's a good point there about doing something controversial or doing something safe. Yeah. Would, would small businesses tend to lean towards something a bit more controversial? Uh, they definitely have the opportunity to do that. Um, uh, you know, I think... For small business, a lot of small businesses ended up on, you know, Google search or, you know, Facebook or Instagram, those sort of worlds. Um, I think what a lot of businesses find is you think, you know, I'm just going to buy an audience and bring it in. But I think what a lot of companies find is the the, the comp- competition for that search word that's important to them is often more expensive, makes it more expensive than they get a direct return out of that. So you can't necessarily buy your way to an audience uh, and it, it's much it's a you know it's it's harder as I talked about it takes a bit more creativity and a bit more uh, consideration but it's you know it's a more sustainable format if you can find a way to get your message out there without having to buy every single eyeball every single time mm, interesting so you, you write about this idea that building brand value is a journey not a destination so is that a trap that a lot of a lot of people that engage you that's where they start thinking oh it's 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 just a destination I'll get to here and then that's it yeah you hear it, you hear it in big business all the time which is we've got a really strong brand and it's like yeah sure you might have a really strong brand uh, it might have been historically really strong as well um, but it doesn't mean you can't lose that strength uh, just because you've got it one year doesn't mean it's going to continue to be strong it's something you have to keep investing in you know, I use the in the, the book the example of the Holden Commodore. Uh, you know, twenty years ago it was the number one brand in Australia. They sold ninety thousand cars every year. You know, it was by far the most dominant car in Australia. Now they sell about ten percent of what they used to, and it's you know it's nowhere near number one, and it's obviously not made in Australia anymore. And you know, there's a really big risk that it's going to disappear from our roads altogether. And so they fell into that trap of you know we're a strong brand, we don't have to evolve too much. So all this other you know. Changes in consumer needs, changes in other competitors, uh, and they just didn't move fast enough, and so they disappeared. Uh, and I think a lot of big business fall into that, which is we're strong, we've got a strong brand, we don't need to keep topping it up. Um, for small business, I guess it's um, you know less likely to fall into that trap. But it's you know it's definitely marketing and building a brand is not just about we've got a great logo, we've got a great sign on the front of our building, or we've got a great website. Uh, you've got a you know, the brand actually sits in the customer's mind and it's what they think about you. So, you know, that's something you've got to keep topping up and continually invest in. Yeah. So you you ask the, the readers of your book to answer a series of questions about being around, are you responsible for a thriving brand? You know, some of the questions like, do you set the pace for your competitors follow? You know, is your product best in class? Things like that. I'm curious to know what what can leaders at all different levels of a business do to make sure they're contributing towards that idea of a thriving brand. Uh, yeah, well, I guess it's depending on what function you play in the role in the in the business. Um, it's understanding what part of that um, helps build the brand for your customers. It's any touch point. Mm. So if you're um, running the call center and people are calling you up and you know people get a shit experience calling up your call center that's part of the brand and that's, you know, that's the, your, you know, that part of the business is doing a disservice to the brand. Um, you know, so you've got to make sure that everyone's talking from the same, you know, hymn sheet and, you know, uh, it's consistent across. So I guess it's understanding what part of the, of the puzzle you play within that. Um, and then um, I think the best organizations are really clear what their brand stands for and stands against. Um, and, you know, the, often you'll find someone at the front of that that's, you know, the business, the founder or the leader or the CEO that's made it really clear, this is what we do and this is what we don't do um, and what the brand's about. And so then any part of the business can understand their role in, in helping fulfill that. 
in part two of your book, you really started to, um, I think, give people a really, really good framework that they can start to use to really think about these issues. Are you able to give sort of the, the listeners the high-level overview of the, your four-step framework? Yeah, sure. So there's four foundations. They sort of interconnect in that um, the best place to start is with step one, which is what customer problem do you solve? Uh, you know, customers are trying to get somewhere. They have a need, they have an aspiration, uh, but often there's something getting in the way of them getting there. Uh, so there's a problem and there's a, there's a tension point there. And so uh, it's about understanding that because that's their motivation to go and buy something to solve it. And so first step is understand the problem you're solving for them. The second is about, um, you know, what's the solution you offer? What are the features and the benefits that are really going to be meaningful and motivating to the customer for them to go, yep, I understand that. That's exactly what I need. Here's my money. Take it now. Uh, and so this is about articulating stuff in a language that... Um, that people that resonates with people, um, and the example I use is, is you know Snickers, another brand I've worked on. It's packed full of peanuts, so I get what the feature is. Uh, really satisfies. Um, you know, I'm really clear what the benefit is. That's memorable. It's really succinct. They could get into lots of detail around. It's got 22% nuts, and that gives you 8% protein, and it's going to make you feel <laughs> yeah. fuller for longer, and all this sort of detail. But you don't remember that, and so it's just about articulating that solution in a way that resonates. It's a language I understand. I'm not a you know, a nutritionist or a you know scientific person. I just just give it to me simply. And so it's about understanding your audience. And the better you understand the customer problem from that first step, the better you can articulate your solution. Uh, the next part is is about selling experiences. Uh, and so this is about um, how do you make it more than a price conversation? Lots of mm-hmm. lots of companies, lots of you know, I see it all the time, all the way from restaurants into big business. They'll have at the front half price or we're 10 bucks, you know, come and get a $10 steak night or whatever it is. Uh, and uh, they're leading with price, thinking that customers just want cheap stuff. Customers definitely at times want cheap stuff. Other times they want a real experience. And so the benefit of, if you want to build a brand, the benefit of selling an experience is that it makes it much more memorable uh, and you can, you know, um, make it richer and make it stick in their head. Uh, and so it's, I guess, a part of that uh, step three. The last step is about making it your brand memorable. So how do you make it uh, stick? So that, as I said, in that split second moment, people go, yep, that's the brand I think of. Uh, makes it easy. I walk into the store, it's there. Uh, it's, a, it's an easy, a, easy transaction. So this is about what's your message? Uh, what's your tone of voice? And how do you do it consistently? Uh, and what's your platform to get that, uh, make those memories strong? Uh, and so, uh, you know, how do you get your message out there? Is it podcasts? Is it... You know, is it billboards? Is it TV? Is it you know word of mouth? You know, how do you how do you make your brand memorable, and how do you consistently get it out there? Because mm. as we talked about, those those memories are fragile. So if you're not if you're not continually topping them up, they'll mm. disappear. Yeah, I, I think you see that a lot on. Uh, well, I see it a lot on my LinkedIn feed. People talking about the need on LinkedIn to be consistent. Yeah. If you're using LinkedIn as a platform for sharing whatever your message is. Yeah. Because uh, I think you're right. There's so much new stuff coming in that you know, before you know it, you've forgotten, and the new kid on the block is in front of you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I really liked your point about understanding your customer problem, and you, and you talk about that in, in as a way of unlocking uh, growth for your organisation. So how do you recommend people go out and have that conversation with their customer about you know what really is your problem? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's about getting as close to that moment they're experiencing you know that need and that problem and um just immersing yourself in it uh often it's hard for people for lots of products it's hard for people to articulate what's going on or what they need or whatever they are because some people just get used to what they they do all the time and so you want to get in there and you know really understand um what they're going through in the using that product or service and you know, how they're buying and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, we've done stuff, for example, with uh, with tech and you get on, you, you you can ask people what they think of a website or an app or a feature or whatever and they can tell you. And it's not until you get on there and, you know, they do funny things like they'll save different tabs open or they'll click a certain path and you go, why are you doing that? And it's like, oh, 
that's so I can remember where I am or, you know, like there's frustrations that they're going through that they probably can't articulate. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be in that moment. Um, there's a book I love um, uh, called Small Data and Martin Lindstrom talks about getting into people's homes and, you know, and really understanding, uh, you know, frustrations. And we do a lot of, we'll go into people's homes, open their fridge door and just see what's in there or pantries or, you know, you re- really get into it. You know, as I said, the internet stuff, going through search histories, obviously sharing that you're going to do that, but get, you know, get really getting in to see what they've, what they've been up to and what they're doing, um, you know, because it's, you know, uh, lots of research for companies as, as, defaulted to using focus groups but it's a bit artificial strangers sitting around a table in a sterile room with a glass mirror and you know they're saying what they think you want to hear they're not really being honest and transparent and you know part of it is they don't always know what they what they they go through because it's just normal for them so the richest stuff is definitely close to the moment we've done work where we're working on some running gear we've gone out and interviewed people while we're running and so you get into that you yeah. get right in at the moment and you can get experience what they're experiencing, see what they're doing. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, the chafing and stuff. That's all stuff. That you, you need to be there in that moment to experience yeah. it and, and hear it. So, yeah, get as close as you can to the action is the advice. Okay. I was particularly interested in uh, this point because um, my industry is relatively competitive where you talk about competitor advantage lies in being able to uncover or see what others haven't. So how do you how do you foster that that type of that type of approach? Yeah, it's about curiosity, and it's about sort of um, you know just being really curious. And I think a part of it is um, as well uh, in lots of industries you end up um, people uh, have a lot of assumptions built into the way they do things, and they you know they think there's a certain way to approach something and it just becomes the norm like it's the norm it's the sort of way things have always been done so why shouldn't we do it that way Um, and I think what you find in most companies the most industries is it's someone that's never been in the industry that comes and disrupts it because they come in like a novice they ask lots of silly questions but they learn a lot more and so they you know they can uncover stuff that never you know other people haven't done because they're just having a different view of things you know most companies are all you know, you're looking at companies across industry, most people are following the same blogs, reading the same, you know, journals, newspapers, magazines, whatever it is, going to the same places for inspiration, and they end up with all the same uh, fuel, I guess, for their business. And so that's why it all looks the same. Whereas, you know, as I said, it's the one that comes in that's a bit, you know, a bit left field. And why are you doing that? You know, really uncovering what, what's what's the motivating uh, asset behind that. And so, yeah, I think that's the... Um, that's the best best opportunity is get back to your customer and you know because ultimately they're your boss they're the ones that pay you and they're the ones that you know make or break your business yeah I thought it was in uh, relevant to you know keeping on with the idea of, of customer where you talk about uh, how important it is to keep bringing yourself back to the fact that consumers pay brands to solve their problems for them how do we know that we haven't lost sight of of what those problems are that our customers are looking for us to solve? Uh, it's a good question. I, I don't know if it's always that that easy because disruption is by, by definition sort of someone coming left field and doing something that's never been thought of. But, you know, if you're, um, if you're selling a product or a service, I guess it's about um, <clears throat> understanding from the customer's point of view, what's in that competitive set? You know, is there companies that are doing something quite different that solves the same problem for them uh, and you know I guess it's um, customers jobs that they need doing often are solved by more than you think your industry is and it's broader than you think it it is so you know again I use chocolate bars as an example we always thought Snickers was the hunger you know three o'clock in the afternoon get you through to dinner type moment but you know that can be solved by chips that can be solved by you know, muesli bars, piece of fruit. And so your competitive set's a lot broader than you actually really think. We always thought it was, you know, Mars and Boost and, you know, other Kit Kat and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, I guess if you put yourself in your customer's shoes, see what else they're buying, you can then understand, well, is, is someone in the muesli bar category going to do something that's better solving that three o'clock afternoon to pick me up, get me through to dinner? So it's really trying to step out of your own bias of, 
what you do and try to step into that customer view and look at what else they could purchase instead of you. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I think a lot of companies will go, we sell product X, we sell widgets. But what a customer is actually buying is the benefit of that. And so you need to understand what are they trying to solve and what's the benefit they're trying to buy because there's lots of different ways to, yeah. to solve that. Yeah. So it's that idea of they're not, dry, they're not buying the drill bit, they're buying the hole. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and Seth Godin talks a lot about this. You know, they're buying the hole, but they're also buying um, the picture frame, hang, picture frame hanging on the wall and they're buying the warmth that comes with that. And so you can ladder that up a long way. There's, you know, they don't necessarily need the hole. They might just use a, you know, those 3M little hooks that stick on the wall. So the problem can be solved a lot broader and a lot more laterally than you consider a lot, a lot of mm. cases. Mm. So you talk about this idea of the sweet spot. So what's the, what's the sweet spot we should be looking for? Uh, yeah, so I guess for, for companies, um, uh, particularly in solving problems, you're trying to identify something that's really valuable to the customer, but you're also trying to find something that's going to be profitable for the business. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can do really well by the customer uh, and service them really well, but they may not actually pay you uh, enough to cover your costs. Um, and likewise, you can do something really profitable as a business, but it might not be that valuable to the customer that they go, yeah, there's lots of demand for that. And so it's about finding that intersection between the two. So, you know, customers are going to be happy and your shareholders are going to be happy at the end of that. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's connecting those two parts. Okay. And I, I'm, I was in uh, Perth this week and I was talking about to the, the group that I was training, I was talking to them about this idea of, of customer value. You talk about needing to share the value. How do we, how do we go about sharing the value? John Mars had a really good perspective on this, which is, you need to make profits to sustain as a business. But if you get to a point where you're making too much profit and gouging the customer too much, it opens up the door that someone else can come on underneath you and do something better and cheaper and you know more you know more satisfying to the customer. So it's I guess it's um it's finding that happy medium where it's valuable for the customer and valuable for the business, but you're not you're not giving away too much of your profits, but equally you're not taking too much from the customer because that opens up opportunities for other people to come in mm. underneath. I want to talk about products because this uh, this resonated with me because I think I might be occasionally be a little bit guilty of falling in love with a product or service that we've, we've developed. And you talk about this idea of creating fit-for-purpose products. Can we explore that a little? Uh, yeah, and so that that's, um, uh, that's about uh, off you know, potentially offering a range of products or services. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes people are going to want to come and have the best experience and the, all the bells and whistles and, you know, it's about designing the right product for that moment. Other times they just want something quick, cheap and, you know, just get me in and out and let's be done with it. Uh, and so it's it's sort of meeting, meeting that. I guess what I find in most industries, you have a real spectrum of routes to market you know, there can be very price value driven areas of the market where people want the cheapest, um, you know, they just want something basic and, and, and be done with it. And other times there's a, you know, they want something amazing, uh, fully curated experience. So I use wine as a great analogy here. Sometimes it's Tuesday night and you go to the local pizza joint and you just want the house red. Just give me a glass of the house red. You know, they're not really caring about you know, does it taste like Grange? And like, they're just, they're just, it's fit for purpose. It's just, it's Tuesday night. I don't want to spend too much money. I just want to come in and have a quick pizza and wash it down. Other times they're having a dinner party and they want, you know, they want the full backstory or they've gone to a cellar door and they, you know, they want to really get into the moment. They've got the whole afternoon to really just relax and have a glass of wine. And so they want to get into, you know, where is it grown? Tell me, the winemaker come and tell me, how long it's been in the barrel and all that sort of stuff. And so what you sell that person that moment uh, can be m much more extravagant and sophisticated and you can charge them more for it. On Tuesday night at your local pizza shop, they're not going to pay $80 for a bottle of red. They just want a glass of red you know, for six or seven bucks, something that's really you know, achievable. So I think you know, wine's obviously a simple one to talk about, but most industries have it, you know, mm. the big... You know, the Bunnings or the Coles and Woolies that you walk in, you know you're getting something cheap because they've got lots of it and, you know, it's discounted at half price. 
versus going to an you know, amazing bottle shop or cellar door, as I talked about, where the experience is much richer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for as a company that's selling to those different channels, it's about what's the high volume, most efficient product we can make that we can sell a bit cheaper, what's one, something that's got a bit more richness and backstory and product and features that, you know, that we can offer to them. Okay. Got me thinking about our product suite now. I'm thinking which one's our glass red, which one's the the, the really nice. Yeah, and so we have, it, we have it in Agents of Spring where we, we deal with big business and so you can go in and, you know, you can put lots of time into the project and you can charge them a, you know, a decent price and, you know, it's all acceptable. Mm. We have that same conversation with a startup and they just fall off their chair when we start talking about the numbers because, mm. you know, they just can't afford it, and mm. which is fair enough. You know, I run my own startup. You, yeah. You get tired on, on yeah. stuff. And so it's like, you know, what's the full service experience versus what's the, you know, in this case, go and read the book. Go and buy the book for 35 bucks, read the book. Or, you know, go and read some articles or listen to a podcast or yeah. ha- how do you offer it in a way that's more accessible for a different audience. Mm-hmm. You also write about this idea an experience lasts a lifetime. How do brands go about making these experiences? Yeah, well, I guess it's it's a thinking about um, engaging more than one sense. I guess you know what are the what are they hearing? What are they seeing? What are they? What, what's the touch like? What's the smell? Uh, and so, if you engage, and science is really clear on this, if you engage more than one sense, it's more memorable. Uh, and so that's really what you're trying to do. You know, back to the sales example of walking into Coles and Woolies um, to get my you know dinner at night. It's not that I'm, it's not that great an experience. It's pretty boring. Not that memorable, you know, versus going to a farmer's market to go and get your, buy your, your dinner party, you know, food. It's it's a totally different experience, much more memorable. Um, you know, back to the wine analogy, you can probably tell me the last vineyard you went to and what the brand was and, yeah, tell me all experience. You probably can't tell me what the house red was on Tuesday night at the pizza shop or what you bought from the $2 bin at the, you know, the bottle shop. So, you know, it's about... It's about adding more richness to it because that makes it more memorable. And that's the best brands that have done that are doing that really well. Um, you know, again, I'll talk about Four Pillars Gin in the book and, you know, they, they did a, they've done an amazing experience of working with the best bartenders in Australia, the best restaurants, you know, to make a really great gin and tonic. Uh, and, you know, it's much more memorable. And that's how they're going about building their brand is, you know, every single time someone has a gin and tonic, they want it to be the best and that makes it more memorable for them. Yeah. Yeah, think, talking about that, it makes me think of the what Ryan Reynolds and um, Hugh Jackman are doing with their their coffee and gin, like they're they're having goes at each other and pretending to make ads about each other, and yeah. it's all humorous. But I think it's all actually doing that thing. It's just their way to make that memorable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. De- definitely. Okay. You talk about the need to stand out and deliver. How do we make sure that we're standing out and delivering? This is about just not being boring. You know, the average person in a city is is exposed to about 5,000 messages a day. There's a very small fraction of that that I can actually remember. You know, it's not that question of what's the great ad you've seen recently. People struggle with that question because not a lot of it kicks through and and really hits you between the eyes and is is memorable. Um, And what you'll find in any industry is um, there's lots of cliches. You know, the beer guys talk about it. A beer ad's got to have four guys joking around, you know, at the pub and they have the back shot of a beer and, you know, glowing sort of golden colour coming through. Um, and every beer ad for de- decades was made like that. And then, you know, the guys like Carlton drafted the big ad and it's not what you expect from it, uh, from a beer ad. And so it, stand- it cuts through. But every single industry's got it, you know, lots of um, fashion... Um, Food and beverage products and household products have got the same. You know, if you look through uh, car ads for SUVs, they're all the same. It's a family, it's sporty, and there's stuff, you know, there's a dog and all this sort of stuff. It's very cliche. Uh, what happens is people just, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it just becomes very generic for them and they've seen it before, so they sort of switch off. Um, again, Seth Godin talks about it as the purple cow. You're driving along the road and, you know, you see a cow. The first time you see it, go, oh, great, I saw a cow. Then you keep going along and they're just cow after cow after cow after cow. And you go, I don't notice them anymore. And then, you know, he he talks about the purple cow. If you're driving along and see a black and white cow and you keep seeing them, they all become generic. Then all of a sudden you see a purple cow and go, wow, there's a purple cow. And then 
you, you know, same thing. If you keep driving along and see purple cows, they all become very generic. But yeah, that's that's the that's the point is making something a bit more interesting and a bit more mm. standout um, uh, and distinct, so that it's it's uh, memorable and when when people see it. Yeah, and I actually think that's got some real real relevance to career focused leaders in terms of how they brand themselves and how they what they're doing to stand out if there's you know four leaders in line for the promotion how they stand out to as the, as the first and only choice for the next promotion yeah yeah and often I've you know I've done lots of hiring and it's um you know people come into the CV and they'll go yeah I've done you know I did study this at university and did this you know entry level job and worked my way up and did this and this and they're all the same but often it's the you know someone that's um you know, has got a hobby, you know, yeah. you know, an artistic skill they're doing or, you know, um, they're playing the guitar or something, something left field or, you know, they've done a, you know, they've done a five or 10 years in one particular channel of um, industry as a career, but then they jumped into something totally different. And, you know, just the diversity that comes from that experience that makes it more interesting. So, yeah, you definitely, there's lots of ways you can stand out as a leader. Um, you know, if everyone's walking in in blue suits and, white shirts and a you know red tie it's pretty easy to, you know how to, how to stand out in that sort of environment you write about uh the need to make decisions and then understand the consequences that come with those decisions and i think it's uh something again very very relevant to leaders how do people start to look at decision making and consequence in your view yeah there's definitely trade-offs to everything you do you know, particularly when you're building a brand, but in you know a leadership leadership example, you know like again I'll sort of get back to really tangible products. If you want to add more products, benefits, and features to what you're offering, that's going to come with the consequence of more cost. You know, if you don't understand that, the fact that you're bringing more cost to it, you're probably not aware that you're going to have to charge more for it. And if you want need to charge more for it, there's probably going to be less demand for it. Or you're going to have to find a way to get it to market that people are happy with that price. Uh, and so they sort of all, you know, particularly when you think about really tangible products, there's always knock-on effects. If you want to offer it in 15 different colors, it's going to add more complexity to your supply chain. And you need to be aware of that. You know, if you, most businesses have are profitable and, and successful because they're efficient at doing something really easily and, and you know, something really consistent and doing it time and time again. And that's how they make the money. If you want to start adding more complexity to that and more, you know, trying to service more customers, more tailored products, you need a back of house office mm. that can help help achieve that. Um, and so, yeah, it's just understanding all of those knock-on effects. You can you can't be sort of the you know, the cheapest and the most sophisticated and the best quality yeah. all at the same time. Mm, it's about finding your spot, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, are there any books or people or leaders that inspire you? Uh, definitely when I wrote Brand Hustle, there were lots of books I kept going back to, you know, in a marketing world, um, there's really, there's scientific books around, uh, things like, um, how brands grow written by academics out of, uh, South Australia. Um, but very, um, uh, it's, it's not the most entertaining book, but it's the fundamentals you need to know. You know, I mentioned before, uh, Small Data by Martin Lindstrom, you know, love the richness of those stories, him getting into houses and, you know, just really getting in and, you know, there's a really interesting story to a lot of it. Um, but for a marketing sense, you sort of need both that, both those sides to it. So I'm involved with my startup uh, business I'm involved in is Calm and Stormy, uh, sparkling mineral water and still water in um, aluminium cans, most sustainable packaging format you can get. Um, and this is sort of trying to sort of resolve some of the, the ills of me selling plastic, a lot of plastic when I was at Schweppes. Uh, but a very sustainable business. But one of our real inspirations we draw on is Patagonia. Uh, and so the leader um, behind that wrote a book called Let My People Surf. Uh, and so it's an amazing book about how he's trying to set up his business for uh, doing good for the environment and the world uh, as well as, as, as sort of being a profitable ongoing business. So, you know, find him fascinating as a leader. Um, yeah, that, you know, Lots of books out there. I'm reading one at the moment called um, "Made to Stick," uh, and so it just really gets into, you know, how do you how do you make um, messages stick, which I think is a, is a fascinating thing, and I guess it links closely to what I, a lot of what I do. Now, if people want to know more about the work that you do, uh, where should they go to find you? What should they look for? 
so um, online, it's of uh, agentsofspring.com is our website. You know, there's sort of lots of the detail about the service we, we offer. Uh, you know, we do all the way from, um, you know, what's that customer problem and what's that, you know, what's that need you're trying to solve and the problem you're trying to solve through to ideating and coming up with creative ideas through to prototyping and through to helping get it to market. So um, you can see more there. Um, I guess that's the main point. Catch me on LinkedIn is another place to to find me as well and just see a bit about what we're up to. I share a lot of articles on there of stuff I'm writing and um, you know uh, stuff that's going through my head as okay. a way of getting it out there. Okay, go to ask. Where'd you come up with the name Agents of Spring? Where did that come from? Uh, well, that came to me in the shower. Uh, but we, um, uh, I guess, there's two parts to our business. One is the investigative side. How do you sort of find the problem? Uh, which is where the agent came in, sort of secret agent, you know, sort of ninja type approach. And uh, we always want to use all of that insight to come up with growth ideas. So spring was sort of the season of renewal and growth. And so sort of merging of those two ideas, uh, uncovering what's going on and, and how do you use that for growth. Okay. So any last words on brand and leadership? Uh, we, my definitely... Um, you know, I think uh, it's easy in big, big or even sort of medium-sized businesses to say, we've got a marketing person, they look after the brand. My message to all leaders is that you all look after the brand. Uh, if you're a CEO and you want to grow a business, you need to understand a brand and how it grows. Um, you know, you look at, you know, the likes of uh, Steve Jobs and what he did with Apple. You know, it's a really big, obvious case study, but um, he made the most amazing products but he built a brand and he was really strong at building that brand and understanding what Apple was. And that's why they're valuable. They're not valuable because of the supply chain they've got or all that sort of stuff. They make great, great products, but they can charge a lot more than Samsung and they've done it there. They've pushed the boundaries. So, um, you know, if you want to grow a business organically, you need to understand how to grow a brand. Uh, if you just want to buy your way, you can get the finance guy to help you buy other companies and, and sort of buy your way to growth. But, um, you know, that would be my message is that... Um, you know, brands are a source of growth and uh, if you can understand how they grow, then you can, you know, really grow your business. Well, on that note, Troy, thank you so much for being on the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. No worries. Thank you for having me. Well, that wraps up episode 87 of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast, another great author interview episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergy Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver too. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review. In next week's episode, we have another great author interview for you where I speak with Shane Hatton, who is the author of Lead the Room, Communicate a Message that Counts in Moments that Matter. It's another great author interview. Till then, love to hear what you think and happy listening. Happy listening.